Hey, Splainers, welcome to another re-release from our archives. This episode was recorded a couple years back with our good friend Harrison Brookie, who runs the Alchemy Comedy Theater here in Greenville. We didn't have fancy studio equipment then, so forgive the less than stellar audio quality. We think it's still a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it while you wait on our fresh new episode coming next week. Today's episode of Splain Yourself is brought to you by Bodybuilding.com. Do you have skinny robin-like legs? Or maybe a bird chest? Please flap one over to Bodybuilding.com for a wide selection of unregulated supplements, fitness products, workout plans, and a terribly narcissistic social media community component. Explain yourself, everyone. The podcast that gives regular people a chance to explain their actions or beliefs. I'm Sarah, and I've been dubbed the mayor of Crazy Town today. And I'm Michael, double gun pointing up in this Mickey flip. Double guns! <laughs> our, our topic today is humor. What makes us laugh and why and how? How do we do so? So our guest today is an expert in this field. We just happen to work with him, but he gets paid to be funny. His name is Harrison Brookie, and not only does he mold young minds with us here at Next High School, he also runs the Alchemy Comedy Theater, an improv troupe here in Greenville. Welcome, Harrison. Hey, guys. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, thank you for uh, spending some time with us. We've asked you here today to, of course, explain yourself, and in doing so, also explain what actually constitutes comedy or your philosophy of comedy. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you end up running an improv theater? Yeah, so I grew up here in Greenville uh, in a pretty large family. I have like six siblings, approximately. (laughs) And uh, that leads to a lot of uh, fast-talking, fun-loving, humorous people. And so I had kind of always been funny and used humor um, as a tactic in general, but I had not really done any performance or any uh, real acting. I did some acting uh, like in middle school, but nothing uh, really until college. So my sophomore year at Clemson, I was taking a theater intro class and you had to do uh, some kind of like special extra work on the side, like set up for a show or sell tickets or audition for something. And so being uh, a 19 year old kid looking for the easy way out, I auditioned for something you didn't have to prepare for. (laughs) So I auditioned for Mock Turtle Suit, which is Clemson's improv group, um, and I got in. And that was 14 years ago. Had you had any experience with improv before that? I don't remember anything. I think I had seen Whose Lines anyway, I think, but I didn't really remember growing up watching it very much. And I had gone to their show, which was two days before the auditions. So I like went and watched the show, and I was like, oh, okay, I could audition for this. <laughs> and then I auditioned and got in, apparently. Okay, so you got onto the Green Turtleback Improv or whatever that was yep. called. <laughs> yep. How, that is a big step from uh, comedy sort of college hobby to running your own troupe professionally. How do yeah. we make that leap? Yeah, so I did that for four years, uh, undergrad and grad at Clemson. And then I had visited, um, there's like comedy festivals throughout the country. And there's a comedy festival in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And so I visited there, um, went there every February uh, with my college group to go and perform and take workshops and things like that. And when I graduated from Clemson, my wife and I were going to go, we wanted to travel somewhere, we wanted to live somewhere else that wasn't Greenville, somewhere that was different than Greenville. 
uh, but not too different. We're only like slight risk takers. <laughs> so we were like somewhere in the south, someone who's not as conservative as, as Greenville, um, but somewhere we can still drive, um, which, and not Atlanta. So yeah, there's not a lot yeah. of options. Sure. Yeah. It was like Richmond or Chapel Hill. And I had been to Chapel Hill, we went and visited, and it was lovely. And so I lived there and taught high school uh, in, uh, at Bunn High School. Bunn. Just a shout out to all Give the Bunn up. High School listeners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which was a, a lovely school, and I, I learned to teach there outside of Raleigh. And then I did improv at a theater in Chapel Hill um, and learned to uh, kind of teach improv there. I was a coach there, I was an instructor there. Okay. And then, there we go. I, in 2011, I moved back to Greenville, uh, where I grew up, and there are some Clemson alumni, people I had done improv with at Mocktail Soup, who were living here, but either not doing improv or not doing the kind of improv that we do. And I said, hey, uh, this is almost six years, over six years ago, I said, hey, let's start doing shows sometime in the fall. I started rehearsing, and then um, in September, I started doing shows, 2011, and then started teaching classes in January, and then kind of grew the theater from there and added you know, eight people a year or something like that. Sure, and you, your theater is next to the Coffee Underground in downtown uh, Greenville. Yep. Do you own the theater? Yeah. Like, who physically owns that So space? that theater's been there for a really long time. Uh, since been, Coffee Underground's been there since like 91, I think, wow. or something like that. And so that theater's, to my knowledge, always been there um, since the coffee house has been there. And the very first show the owner tells me was an improv show. Mm -hmm. A guy named Jeff Summerall, if you know that name. He did this big Clemson South Carolina rivalry documentary a couple years ago. Uh, he's he's what local performance was I think in the 90s. Okay. And so he did a couple improv shows there, nothing super regularly. And then there was some music open mics and poetry open mic, which still happens, and stand up open mics, which still happens there. Um, but we started leasing the theater on Fridays, so you lease the theater on a night. So we don't own the theater. Interesting. We, we lease it on a specific night. And then after Fridays, we added Saturdays. After Saturdays, we added Thursdays. So now we have eight shows a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 7.39, and two, uh, a 10.30 show each Friday and Saturday. Sure. And you work at this all, uh, you make a sustained effort at this every day. Yeah. So even when you're not renting the theater, can you talk a little bit about how the logistics of this work? Yeah. So the theater, the theater is kind of in two parts. Uh, there's the performance aspect of the theater, and so we do eight shows a week. And then there's kind of a rehearsal training center part of the theater where all of our performers rehearse once a week. And um, anyone who is a performer has gone through our, at least four level, levels of our training center to learn the kind of basic concepts of how does improv work, how does humor work, how does group ensemble work, because most of what we do is with a group. Um, and so, yeah, probably like 50% of my work is just in the training, uh, training coaches, teaching classes, teaching people to teach classes, and things like that. Well, that's certainly an intensive process, and it seems to me you really enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. I have follow-up questions, but I want to let you oh, okay. um, continue yes. with your line. So the, my last in this line of question before I retire my, uh, my questioning is, it seems to me you don't need to practice improv. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's unscripted, right? So what, yeah. what exactly does practice consist of? So the word improv kind of means without preparation, right? So you can do improvised jazz music or improvised theater. But all of those things require a skill set to kind of already be able to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I actually think uh, improv is actually a lot like playing a sport. Mm. So basketball teams practice, and no one ever says to this basketball team, why are you practicing? The team's not even here. <laughs> right, sure. Don't you just go out there and shoot baskets? <laughs> and they say, well, no, we're practicing. There are things that make us better working together. We're practicing shots. 
getting a rhythm of the game, and that prepares us for the actual competition on the stage or on the. On I the love course. that analogy. That's yeah. awesome. So improv. So all every single person, all seventy five members of our theater, rehearse every single week, at least once a week, uh, and all the teams perform at least once a month. Some of them once a week, but some of them once a month. Awesome. And I was going to ask maybe interwoven with with your practice are there ways that you guys kind of stay on your toes um individually as comedians you know do you like if you think of something really funny just randomly do you do you have any system for saying hey you know what i'm gonna put that in the next show or do you get things from life like i'm thinking of authors and how they keep writers notebooks and they yeah. have little things that they always are just jotting yeah. down but what's your system do you so have we, a system we primarily do improv comedy shows which means when we show up we have no idea what's going to happen right. no, no content is pre-prepared and really any any plans to put in pre-prepared coffee or pre-prepared oh, yeah. look at your word coffee yeah. <laughs> any plans to put in pre-prepared comedy would be it be it wouldn't really be hard to do sure right it would be like if on a basketball team I said man in the third quarter I'm going to shoot only threes yeah yeah like the rest of the team it wouldn't make sense to right why I'm that's true that. um, so that's improv comedy but we also do some sketch comedy and some stand up comedy okay and so improv comedy is great for getting content that you can then put in those types of shows okay um, so we did like a, a, sh- a show recently in our in our festival and a lot of that was inspired by improv scenes that had done before or an idea that. You you could then say, I have this idea. Let's improvise it. And then, oh, how'd that go? Well, let's improvise it again and retry and retry it again. Gotcha. Yeah. And I was also going to ask if you guys have kind of a published or some kind of formatted system that you use for your training, like a like an improv, I don't know, guide curriculum. Or that curriculum. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we have a 101 to 601 improv curriculum. And okay. then we have, uh, so that's 101, 201, 301, 401 is kind of the core curriculum. You have to take those classes in order to audition. And then 501 is kind of like an advanced class of seeing all the different types of long form improvisation. Right. And 601 is kind of like a conservatory where you have to kind of apply to it. The, the current artistic director at the time teaches it. And that's kind of the graduating class for okay. the improv curriculum. And these are like widely used or you guys came up with them? So teaching at the theater in Chapel Hill is yeah. kind of the core of where I learned to teach. Okay. So the classes are not exactly the same, um, but the 101 is pretty close to it. Okay. Um, and it kind of gets probably less the same as you go along. Gotcha. Um, but that's that was kind of the building blocks of it. And then I've also trained at a variety of places around the country. I took a five and a half week class in Chicago. Oh, fun. And just, you know, I, there's festivals, and so I'm constantly going to festivals and taking workshops. Nice. And workshops and things like that. Yeah. Okay, very cool. Yeah, so it's like, as you're trying to estimate, it's probably 20 pages for each class okay. of the curriculum. So 20 times six for the for the improv portion, and then there's a stand up, there's a sketch 502 and a stand up 503, which are kind of like supplementary using sure. the skill sets of improv to do these other more scripted type shows. Sure. So in this curriculum, I mean, I see that it advances and builds on itself. What is it actually then to be funny? <laughs> let's, let's get down to brass tacks. What yeah. makes isn't this what your curriculum is trying to build up? Yeah, is- especially 201. So like 101 is a lot of stage work. Like how do we get people comfortable on stage? Uh, mm-hmm. It's a lot of the stuff I teach here at the school, public speaking. Yeah, I've like seen you teach get, that, right? Yeah, how do we get people to fight against this kind of instinct to be afraid of yeah. groups of people, which is totally normal and totally, totally common uh, with young people or adults. 201 then is, okay, if we're comfortable, or at least we understand the concept, they're all introductory classes, but yeah. if we're comfortable and understand this idea of what stage presence and what collaboration and connectivity looks like. How do we then apply it in a humorous way? I mean, 101 is a very fun, funny class, but 201 is where we really dissect it and ask what is funny. So 
Uh, the answer is it's hard to know what is funny. <laughs> sure. Right? It's very culturally specific. Um, it's very time specific. So, like, I'm sure yeah. if you, like, went back 150 years ago, the things that are very funny would seem very mean to us. <laughs> They'd be mean. Yeah, yeah. If you even, like, watch the first season of The Office... You're like, man, Michael I can't. is mean. I can't watch and it. sexist, right? Yeah. And racist. Yeah. And so even that short amount of time for a right. very popular mainstream television show, it changes. Um, so if I could like summarize very concisely, what I think makes people laugh is kind of an expected surprise. Ah, right? an expected surprise. What does that so um, like if I said one, two, three, four, not very funny, that all makes sense, right? If I said one apple. That's no real context for that, right? Right. If I said one, two, three, four, banana, <laughs> that seems kind of funny, right? We yeah. we have this kind of a sequence, we break the sequence, and uh, because we're like looking for, there's some expectations of it. If that uh, makes okay. Sense. Sure. So, like a constant right. example I give in our 201 class is divorce, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a there's a phrase, another way to describe comedy is benign violation. Ah. Um, so if something's benign, it's not funny. If something's violating, it's also not funny. Right. Right? But if it's both of those things, then it can be really funny. Right. So wow. divorce is a great example. So divorce is not funny. It's sad. Right. Right? Um, it's it's a violation. Right? Yeah. Like, hey, let's, let's talk about divorce. It's like, whoa. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's not. Yeah. Yeah. But then frogs are also not funny, but not because they're, like, violating, but because it's just, like, a frog. It's benign. Right. right. right? Yeah. But imagine a scene where two frogs are getting a divorce. <laughs> oh, interesting. That's okay. funny, right? Right. So in a normal right. scene, it's not funny where someone says, look... I need the kids. I'm taking the kids. You can have the house. Right. Not funny. Right. Right? If I said ribbit, 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 not, not funny. funny. Right? right? But if I said, look, I'm taking the tadpoles. You can you can keep the lily pad, but they're mine. <laughs> That's funny. Right? We have this kind of bridge between these kind of two, an idea that feels like it. I, it's, I understand it. It's expected. Oh, I know what a divorce conversation sure. feels like. Right? Uh, but it's also a surprise because of this kind of... X element of them being amphibians. So I have a question yeah. about this. If you kind of learn about what makes things funny and you become a, a student of comedy, mm-hmm. do you think you can get to the point where anyone can be funny? 100%. Yeah. Okay. Yes. yes. So one of the kind of core ideas of why I think improv specifically is uh, open to lots of different types of people. And that's one of the things that makes especially my theater unique, but it's true of a lot of improv theaters to a certain degree is no one's full-time job is running the theater or participating in the theater. No one is a no one is a professional actor in our theater. There are some people, there's a couple people who are professional actors who do stuff in Atlanta and things like that, but most people are not. Most people are engineers and architects and teachers and nurses. Sure. And the idea is that the skills translate back and forth. That if I can get better at communicating and listening and focusing and collaborating on stage for something silly as frog divorce, <laughs> it can also make me better at those things in the real world. Because really improv is just normal conversations to some kind of heightened stage level. Mm, sure. You know? yeah, that's yeah. a good way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Is there a point, because you do this for a living, that n- you find nothing funny? I, I heard this thing, I think it was about Lauren Michaels, but it was about, they said, when he sees something really funny, he doesn't laugh, he just points and goes, that's funny. <laughs> right. I've read yeah. that. Yeah. I, that yeah. was in the uh, big biography book they put. Yeah, and so I think I think there is a, there is a, there is a there's like, three different res- comedian responses. There's like the no response, that's not funny. There's the like, oh, okay, yeah, like laugh, like acknowledging the yeah. humor there. And the other one is like jealousy, like, oh, that's, I wish I'd have done that. Yeah. That's good, that's yeah. funny. Yes. Um, I still really enjoy comedy. I mean, I still watch at least a show a week. 
or try to. Um, I'm pretty good at like cutting my brain off, like the director brain. Sure. Um, and I think it helps that it's not my whole life. Yeah. I mean, I have three kids at home. I have a career here at the school where I teach uh, history. And so it's allowed me to kind of say, I'm going to sit here and watch this $10 improv show yeah. just for what it is. Sure. Right. And I'll like maybe make some mental notes or some notes on my phone if I need to email a coach or something. But for the most part, and especially while I'm in it, there's like, there's almost no judgment. Because I can't be a director and a player at the same time. Right. right. Um, and so I think it's pro- I probably laugh more if I'm in a show like on the sidelines watching yeah. it. Yeah. Because I'm really, I'm freed myself from any responsibility to the theater. Right. I'm just there to provide this show and support what's going on there. Gotcha. Yeah. So I still laugh at comedy all the time. Um, I think I don't, I don't watch as much comedy TV because I get so much live comedy. I have a theory that drama is better on TV and ah. comedy is better live. I mean, comedy is a collaborative feeling. Everyone sure. in the audience, you laugh, yeah. it makes me want to laugh. Sure. But drama can really be experienced alone. Yeah. You know? And it's also nice to be able to zoom in, right? You can't really zoom in on a stage, but comedy, you'll need to zoom in, but drama, you kind of do need to zoom in. That's right? interesting. Um, and so I think, I think I like watching comedy live and I like watching drama on the screen. Awesome. Interesting. My favorite stand-up comics are often products of some sort of horrible upbringing, mm-hmm. where they ha- they are self-admittedly uh, just kind of a neurotic mess. Or yeah. There is something that has gone on in their past which shapes their point of view. Yeah. Give us an example. Uh, <laughs> the comedian Jim Norton is a sex addict, for right. example, and so his whole act is about his love of transvestites and okay. prostitutes. All right. Right, and so he started out as an alcoholic and a drug addict. And he went to rehab, and his addiction shifted. Okay. So now the whole act is sort of what he enjoys in this realm. Okay. And the the awkward uh, sort of effects of this. Yeah, sure. It's a pretty sure. common stereotype that like comedians are just weirdos so messed and messed up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes, but you don't seem to have any of these problems. <laughs> um, I think, as far as we know, I think yeah, it's all secret. <laughs> yeah. I think there is a truth that humor. Think about the idea of benign violation. If I grew up in a in a home that feels very violating, right? Humor can be a way to like inject some. Mm. Uh, release. I mean, humor is really, it's like a release. Sure. Right? I mean, I once heard a description of why, I think this is probably the best, like, uh, evolutionary explanation I think I have for humor. It's, I'm in the woods, it's 20,000 years ago, right? And I'm hoping that I don't get eaten by a lion. Yeah. That'd right? be good, yeah. That'd be good, right? And I, like, see something over in the corner of my eye, and I'm like, oh no, it's tense, I'm a lion, it's like a lion's gonna eat me, right? And then I realize it's just a flower. And like the human response, uh, yeah, right? It's like this release of me. Right? Yeah. It's the benign yeah. violation. It's like, uh, oh, it's a flower. Yeah. Right? And so laughter is almost this way to communicate this feeling of a release tension. Sure. So I think for people who grew up in a place that feels really tense, like what they say, uh, uh, comedy is like a, uh, it's like a mechanism to deal with tension. It can make things less feel less tense, or it's a coping mechanism, right? Right. Uh-huh. So I think that's probably true. I think there are people who can be naturally funny, and they're using it as a way to avoid tense sadnesses and things like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, oh, I grew up in a, in a, definitely in a pretty... definitely my defense mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's nothing, sure. like, it's not necessarily anything wrong with that, right? I mean, if I've, I think true, there's like the quote at the bottom of my email right now is something to the effect of, Make people laugh when their mouths are open, like pouring truth. Ah. And so you can really, I think, say a lot of things that are very true to people. And with their laughing, they can, it's like a way for them to absorb in a very safe way. Absolutely. Um, so I think I did kind of grow up in kind of a tumultuous home. Um, I have a lot of siblings, and we're all crammed into a little house. Where are um, you in the birth order? I'm in the middle, kind of right in the middle. Middle? Yeah. yeah. High five middle children. High five middle children. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get that good high five on the, 
on the, on the mic. Oh, I thought that was a high five instead of me. Just, <laughs> Are you also a middle, middle child? No, 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 high no high five for Side, you. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just sit here by myself. Um, yeah, so I think I did use it. I think also, I, I remember feeling as a young child like I had super successful older siblings, and I remember I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to be an engineer. I'll just be charismatic and fun. Yeah. And I was also 4'11 when I started high school, and so I was never going to be like an alpha male. Right. I mean, today I weigh like 135 pounds. <laughs> uh, and so I think humor is a way to kind of like manage those situations, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. And there, I think that a lot of the comedians would say they could sort of talk their way out of bullying, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. I think that's pretty common. Situation. Yeah, yeah. I have a distinct memory from middle school of this guy saying, and I don't really remember being bullied that much. I mean, I guess I feel like everyone got bullied, and if you oh, didn't, yeah. you were the one bullying. Yeah. Uh, but I have a distinct memory of this guy saying like, I could beat you up. And my memory is, was, yeah. Yeah. I'm 4'11". Obviously. I weigh 100 pounds. <laughs> and I'm sure it was not as cool as though I'm making it sound. But, what was uh, his response to, yeah, you could? This is all... I, it's hard for me to even know if this memory is even true. <laughs> Might uh, be a dream. Yeah. Had, he did not but... beat me up, or I feel like I would remember that. Um, yeah. So I, I think the way it's flipped for me, though, and because I think I had a lot of support, uh, especially in high school, I like I was the loser of my friends in high school. Like, mm -hmm. I was the troublemaker and they were all much more high positive peer pressure and in high school and in college that I think I had a lot of support. And so I think I kind of used humor in a way that was more healthy. And then the more I understood it, the more I could like pinpoint how it could be useful um, to say like, this needs to be said to this person. How can I say it in a way that feels less adversarial? Sure. I can use humor to do that. Yeah. Sure. Um, does everything seem boring to you because you are in the cutting edge of comedy and pushing the envelope towards what is humorous? So when I uh, make my awful jokes, does this seem kind of boring and, and trite? Or has this like fundamentally skewed how you view interactions with other people? So I think the word jokes, especially in improv, is kind of like a, a no-no word. Like, oh. Because the idea of a joke is, is the same as me shooting my free throws, right? It's a thing that I'm going to say no matter what happens, right? I'm going to go out and, and when I hang out with these people, I'm going to try to work in my old racist grandpa joke, right? Or especially, I mean, I think old men are, are famous for this, right? Mm -hmm. And they say the same jokes over and over again. So I think that I am, like, not interested in. But I think the thing that improvisers are good at is the laughter we've had in this conversation is natural and, like, a part of, like, a human interaction. So that I completely enjoy. And that's, I think, the part that makes improv successful. The idea of, like, a pre-planned, packaged joke, you know, it doesn't feel... Because what improv is, is it's happening there for everyone on stage. The audience is seeing it for the first time, and so are the players. So it's this kind of universal experience. And on stage, if you ever feel like someone's cramming in some weird political perspective or some joke they heard earlier. Sure. A reference to a movie in a way that's like, they're just repeating the movie, right? <laughs> it's like, Guilty. Guilty yeah, of that. This, this doesn't feel like it's, it's enjoyable. I mean, think about the best laughs you had as an adult or as a kid. It's where someone says something and everyone's riffing. Right? Yeah. And everyone that's milk's coming out of his nose. That's right. the best kind of laughter. Yeah. Sure. Agreed. So it feels shoehorned to you. Yeah, it feels unnatural. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like if you're, um, a, a friend of mine is in sales and we're trying to work through how can we help salesmen understand the principles of improv to make it better. Uh, and he said a common problem he has is people will walk up or they'll have a conversation with someone like, oh, how's your family? Great. Are you interested in a vacuum? Yeah. Right? Oh, wow. And so Don't just, care about it feels your completely unnatural. Yeah. That and is how, stiff and rigid. Yes. And so part of what I think humor can do is it, it can kind of, you know, like benign violation can make things that feel rigid more fluid mm. and more natural. Yeah. I love it. So switching gears just a little bit, talk to us about yes and, because I've seen you teach this to yeah. uh, some of our students, and I've heard you say that it's it's kind of a life philosophy even more so than a than an improv tactic. Yeah. 
So one of the things that happens at every improv class I ever teach for the first time with people, whether they're elementary school students, middle school students, high school students, or 75 years old, is there's this inherent, well, one, they're afraid. We're, they're being asked to do something that kind of puts them in a vulnerable position, right? Jerry Seinfeld has a joke where he says, people are so scared of public speaking, it's like their number one fear, over death. Yeah. So at a funeral, they'd rather be dead than you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Given the eulogy. Yeah, given the eulogy. Yeah. So there's this automatic fear of like, I'm being asked to do something dangerous. It feels like I'm about to get eaten by lions, right? And there may be some like evolutionary explanation for why standing in front of a large group of your peers feels dangerous. Probably. But, and now it's not, right? Yeah. There's not really no. any real danger to doing it, but yet your brain has this huge rush and you feel like your heart rate's up and you get hot. And so people automatically feel unsafe, and so they want to say no. Sure. Right? Yeah. And, and, and whatever, it's a heightened stakes, but it happens in the real world when they don't feel unsafe. That in a board meeting, if someone presents an idea, it's very easy for me to see, well, this is why this idea doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's harder for me to say, well, here's the good parts of the idea. How can we build on those good parts? Mm. So the idea of yes and is kind of the core concept of how do we improvise a show together? If you come out and say, it's raining, and I say, no, it's not raining. <laughs> We now know nothing, right? We don't and know you, if it's raining. We don't know if it's not raining. And you've squashed the spontaneity. There's yeah. no yeah. place to go from no, yeah. it's not. Yeah, right. right. But if you say it's raining and I say this is a great time for us to get engaged, <laughs> right? Now I've created this great, rich environment. Thanks to you, now we have this great picture. And thanks to this idea, now we have this great relationship connection. So yes, Dan, it's just a very simple idea of ideas are probably better than you think they are. And really, what you're, you're, the goal is to find a way to say yes to it and find a way to build on it. And for, for me, it's completely applicable. Like, for raising kids, it's super helpful. Because mm. kids are always asking you to do things that maybe they shouldn't do. But I think having your default be yes. Mm. Um, and obviously, you're not saying yes to everything. If my, I caught my son hiding under my car yesterday. Oh, right? no. That's a bad thing. Oh, yeah. right? but what, 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 you know, but if, he's do, but if he wants to jump off my table or something else, like, I think as much as my default can be yes... Um, yeah. I think that's how that's what play is you know if you're playing uh, cops and robbers and someone shoots you and you say no no yeah. one wants to play with you right right. right. it's the same for, for meetings if someone's like I'm trying to do this idea people are like that idea is bad for this reason then not only is that idea dead but the other idea the guy behind you was going to suggest is now not going to be suggested right so an environment of yes creates an environment of more ideas and more spontaneity so yes and is encouragement essentially yeah it really is it's encouragement and not just validation it's not just it's not just go girl but it's like go us (laughs) yeah it's i own the idea too the moment you say it's raining it's raining on me too in the impression wow so it's encouragement and ownership yeah it's co-owned buy-in yeah if you ever say if you ever hear someone say after an improv show I thought I did really well. <laughs> Everyone else did poorly. <laughs> then you were the worst. They missed it. Yeah. You missed the whole idea. Yeah. You, it's, it's, it's like a basketball player saying afterwards, I won, but the rest of the team lost. Which some That's of not them how sports have work. done that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. And I love the parenting tie-in, even though I'm not a parent. Michael, you're not a parent. Nope. But I am an aunt, and yeah. I feel like... Anting is more of a yes and oh even kids. more so yeah, yeah in fact totally. I've gotten the dirty looks from my sister um, you know when dealing with her kids because I'm always like yeah sure why I don't care because I don't have that fear right. it's almost this irrational fear that something crazy is going to happen to your child you know yeah and I think it's the social shame I mean I think yeah. I think it's it's not so much I'm concerned about the health and wealth of my child mm. although it feels like that mm. I think it's actually I'm concerned about the newspaper story about the mom who left her kids yeah 
yeah. play outside without That's interesting. permission, right? So yeah. it's not so much that the kids are less safe. Obviously, they're more safe, right? I mean, who wants to put their kids and have them live in the 1950s right. for their vaccines, right? right. <laughs> um, some, but people some, do, yeah. some people in California, <laughs> even this minute. Jamie yeah. McCarthy thinks that's a wonderful idea. Uh, yeah. Jeez Louise. Um, but I think generally, I think this is, yeah, there's a, there's a yeah, societal fear. And so it's saying no is out of fear. And saying yes is really embracing the fact that there's not that much to fear. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's an improv phrase I say a lot that like lean into the fear. Uh. Uh, the first year I hosted the TEDx Greenville here in Greenville, it's kind of an intimidating thing. I never hosted a big event like that. But the worst case scenario is actually not that bad. Um, <laughs> And do you visualize the worst case scenario or no? You just kind of brush. No. Okay. That's probably yeah. better. No, That's I think it's probably, probably yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you want to be predictive. You want to try to problem solve. But, sure. Um, I just remember thinking like, what else is worth doing than the things yeah. that are your of, Right. Yeah. So sure. yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. And we've hit on this theme before. Mm -hmm. Maybe what's worth doing is what makes me comfortable. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I do plenty of things that make me comfortable, but you're already going to do that. That's not very good advice, right? That's like advice to everyone, keep breathing. Right. Right, your <laughs> right. default is gonna be what makes you comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think most of what we do is what makes us comfortable, right? Choosing toothpaste, choose the one that you like more, right? But I think in the question is, why am I deciding not to do this? If the answer is fear, and it's not like gonna kill me fear, yeah. right? Like yeah. I don't wanna own a bear. That seems like a pretty thing, good thing to say no to. <laughs> but, but most of our fears, don't match up with the actual statistics, right? Yes, they're, they're unfounded. Yeah. I'm scared of needles, even when they're administered by doctors, not exactly because right. the needle is going to harm me. Right, yeah. Even though it does sting a, yeah. a wee bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. But that I don't like the, the, idea, the of idea of it. Yeah. And I don't like watching it yeah. when it goes through the skin. Oh, don't watch. I always turn away. Oh, I, no, I think the research says to watch. Really? Yeah. Ew. You're, you're no. suggesting lean into it? Lean into it. Oh, I watch it. Lean into the fear. Maybe uh. I'll try that next time. Yeah, but really, what? but again, if we were like robots, you would. Be, everyone would be constantly afraid of not getting the shots, uh. right? You'd be constantly worried about like, oh, I'm supposed to get a shot today. Oh no, that's the real threat, right? Yeah. Right. The yeah. real threat is to get polio. Yes, that um, is certainly a problem. And so I think trying to calibrate, I think our fear calculators are just not very good because think about how much life has changed for humankind even in the last 200 years, Sure. right? And that our brains just haven't changed that much, or if only mm. at all, right? Um, and so there's just a lot of catch up to do. Um, we're, I mean, I mean, the reason, the number one killer of, uh, of Americans is that we eat too much delicious food, right? <laughs> but the, uh, the number one killer yeah. 300 years ago was the exact opposite. Right, right. We don't Starvation. eat enough delicious food. We yeah, get right. more calories and these things, and so our brains yeah. just haven't caught up. And I think that's that might be the hidden danger in just always doing what you're comfortable with. It's not just that, you know, even with the physical things, you could end up really harming yourself, but even just like socially, do, always doing what's comfortable. To me, it seems like there's gonna be this, this cognitive dissonance that pops up that you just don't even know is the result of you right. constantly being comfortable. And yeah. you may not attribute it to that ever, but that's probably what it is. Yeah. So you've, you've worked with and so many people. Let's get, let's get biblical real quick. Yeah. Like the number one command in the Bible isn't don't have adultery, it's don't be afraid. Yeah, right. it is. So I think there's that's some real- That's in there so many times. It's like a real, I think that there's, there's, a, there's an assumption that we're gonna be afraid right. already in society. Right. Yeah. I'm glad it's you brought that up. Set. Jerry and I tell that to each other all the time. Like the number one most common phrase in there is do not fear. Yeah, sorry, what were you saying? No, I just wanted to ask about the people that come into your theater to do improv, because you have people that are in your troupe, but then you also just have like people that come and try 
improv for students. Yeah, who yes. take classes. Right, yeah. the classes. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So you've you've seen like probably some some metamorphoses of people who like are just deathly afraid of being in front of people. Yeah. And then what what does what does improv do for them? What's the, what's the thing where you do it over and over again and you get used to it? What's that called? It's called muscle memory. Assimilation? Yeah, well, just whatever that is. So you do something once and it's hard and scary. And you do it 100 times, it's a lot less hard and scary. Oh, sure. And so what improv makes you do is it makes you interact with people in an uncomfortable situation and somewhat high stakes. I mean, it's... It's a ten dollar improv show. It's something I'm constantly reminding people. It's like it's not that big a deal. <laughs> it's not high stakes, um, really. Yeah. But it does feel like high stakes. Your yeah. brain thinks it's high stakes. People come out of an improv one on one class, and I bet if you watch their brain, a very similar thing is happening at like boot camp in the army, oh, yeah. or like in a foxhole. Sure. Right? Yeah. You feel like you're gonna die. And yeah. People are with you, and they went through it together, right? Um, and so the metamorphosis, I think, is you just get used to it. Yeah. You get one used to being uncomfortable. And the things that were once uncomfortable aren't even that uncomfortable anymore. I mean, for me to do an improv show on that stage that's connected to Coffee Underground now, I mean, we've had 2,000 improv shows, and I've been in wow. easily over half of them, you wow. know? And so it's like, it's, I don't even think about it. No. Second but then I do, like, like so last week I did a Christmas party for a veterinary hospital, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is what it feels like in my gut to uh-huh. like do a show again, yeah. right? And I always get, I mean, I, I get, we warm up before shows, and part of the reasons we warm up for people who are nervous is to kind of get them connected and eye contact with everybody yeah. else. And the people who aren't nervous anymore, it also kind of reminds them of, there are some stakes here, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think one of the metamorphoses is you just get used to taking risks. You get, your default becomes more yes. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I sent an email to the company on Sunday and said, I need this favor. It's for essentially, can you, can you give me your whole Saturday for something? Oh, wow. And within like two hours, people said yes. Uh, lots right? of yeses. It was very easy, yeah. right? Um, and, and I think the, the, the thing that is unique about my own perspective and how I run the theater is the danger in that is it can, you can have cultish power. Oh, you know? yeah. There's a lot of theaters that say, hey, you're a part of our improv family. And I don't say that. Yeah. Because I have a family. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah. These are, I like that. Some of them are, are, are good, good friends. Um, some of them were at my wedding. I was in some of their weddings, right? And some of them I do consider like true outside of improv friends, but those are because we've connected in the world outside of improv. Right. Like children play together or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm very hesitant to say that we are a family. We're a community, and that's, yes. that's, that's important. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to, when I cut you from your improv team, I'm not your dad. Doing right, it, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I think there is a there is a there is this. Um, I once heard someone say like, "Say yes until you have to say no," and that's like mm. a pretty good rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. So like, your default should be yes, but that doesn't mean we want to like embrace sexual harassment, right? Right. So no. Going right. Around, no, and, no, and, and, no. Right. And so part of this really is to understand what it means to say no and be able to empower and uh, and really saying no to sexual harassment is actually saying yes to the larger mission of the organization. There you go. Right? Mm-hmm. We want to make people say, feel safe and supported, um, and so really, those types of actions are the opposite. They're, mm. saying, they're saying no to people. They're, mm-hmm. they're making people feel like they're limited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there, in your experience, are there characteristics that people could come to you with that you could predict them to be a successful improv practitioner? Like, for yeah. example, it helps to, if you want to be an NBA player, it really helps to be tall. Yeah. And if you're not tall, the chances of making the NBA decrease greatly. <laughs> what are some of the pre sort of predetermined characteristics they come to you with? And you would say, this person is going to be really great at it. Yeah. And is any of it short and fat? Um, <laughs> I think I have a. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's great about improv is that imp- the joke is that improvisers are just like uh, normal looking actors. Yeah. Like, actors don't look like people. They look like these, like right. even like ugly people on TV yeah. are like really attractive. Right. Yeah. yeah. But improvisers are just slubs. They're just like normal people. <laughs> right. There's no, actually almost no physical qualification to do improv, which is great. Um, I, I think I'll preface the answer with who would be good at improv is that 
Give it enough time, anybody can be good at improv. Sure. Yeah. Just like give it enough time, anybody can be good at free throws. Free throws. Sure. Right? Barring some major physical disability, yeah. right? If you give me a hundred years, I will be amazing at shooting free throws. <laughs> right. right? Yeah, would, yeah. So same thing yeah. for improv. Um, the difficulty becomes if you don't have a hundred years. Yeah. So if you start doing improv at seventy, yeah. you one, you're unlearning a lot of seventy years of stuff. Yeah. And you're learning more other skills on top of that. Right. right? So youth can be an advantage, especially, um, but there's probably a cutoff. Like you have to have some understanding of how you personally are before you can play pretend characters, mm, right? Mm-hmm. So it's self-awareness and youth so far? Yeah, so self-awareness. And not, I don't even mean youth. I just mean time. So that's okay. what youth is. Youth oh, is just sure, time to sure. do it, right? Um, people who are already doing public speaking are already good at it, mm-hmm. right? Because they're, they're already, they've already gotten rid of some of these other issues that come with it of just being a, being scared and being supportive. Um, people who already work in like some kind of collaborative environment, right? So if I'm trying to think of the worst person to do it, <laughs> right? Which might actually be the most important person to do it. No, they right, should do it, right? That, so, that's validation yeah, for your theory. Yeah, so let's, let's create the worst student. <laughs> so they're 80. Okay. Yeah. They work at home. They don't interact with anyone. How about a shepherd? Like you're older, <laughs> just you and the sheep all day. But a shepherd is doing a lot of nuance with sheep, right? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's having to be kind of be the, I mean, part of the improv is the nuance of it, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know the details of being a shepherd, but um, <laughs> I think the, the having to, I mean, dealing with animals is not radically different, right? Than interacting with humans. So there's probably some, probably some part of it there. So 80 works alone at the home, uh, um, is giving a task and just does it with no interaction with people. Sure. Um, has general anxiety, social anxiety, um, and uh, is mean. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it's safety conscious. That's the big thing too, because uh, risk averse. But those people aren't going to sign up. The, the thing, the, the, one of the things I say at every company meeting we have, we have a company meeting every six months at audition at auditions. A thing I say a lot is, we've created an incredibly wonderful community here because there are people who were willing to take a big risk at least six months ago when they started taking classes, or maybe 10 years ago for some people, right? They have some kind of stick to itness mm-hmm. of like, I wanna keep going and getting better, it's self-improvement, mm-hmm. right? You're learning a task that's hard, right? Um, and like supportive, because part of the, the challenge, you're getting supportive, you're getting feedback and notes on a regular basis, right? Which I think is a, a specific type of person. You've showed up on time, right? For a series of classes and, and rehearsals and things like that. And so that the training center, the reason why you can't audition until you take 401 is the training center is just like a filter. Like it filters out all the douchebags. It filters out the people who aren't reliable. It filters out people who just don't have $175, right? Right. Um, and which, which actually can be a problem. There, there probably is maybe what a lack of income diversity mm. may lead to a, a lack of racial diversity um, because there is somewhat of a financial barrier. Yeah. And we are in the process of setting up a, a scholarship to kind of deal with some of those issues while at the same time trying to keep the reliability still there. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And being mean, you think, would make you worse at improv? Because I think mean is often funny. <laughs> Um, that depends. But it's, it's collaboratively funny, right? I mean, right. I don't know what mean means. I guess I was thinking someone who uh, is unkind Just and kind of a jerk to everybody. Yeah. I mean, the person who's at the So meeting. they're mean in real life. They're not stage mean. Oh, no, no, no. I mean mean in real life. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, yeah, if, I, if I'm playing a mean person on stage, I'm playing a character. That, that's one of the things, too. Is, I, mean, I would also say you said self-awareness. Yeah. So the, kind of the, maybe one of the flip sides of that would be insecurity. If you're really insecure and you're so unsure of every choice you ever make, 
being able to be embracing other people's choices and have them embrace your choice yeah. is really, really hard. Mm. Yeah. And, and I'll be clear, all that list of those things I just described, if that's not you, then you should take an improv class. Yeah. You're perfect for it. Right. If it is you, you should definitely take an yeah. improv class. To be perfect for you. And yeah. be less yeah. mean spurred. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before you come in, just get that out of your system. And we, we, we do like an intro. I, I'm there at the beginning of every improv 101 class to say these kinds of things that we're asking you to take risks and be vulnerable and try new things and just trust us, we'll take care of you. Don't sexually harass each other. <laughs> I mean, those all sound very reasonable and seem like they would uh, move your improv career along, I yeah. think. Um, we are sort of getting towards the end of our, mm. our time here. We don't want to hold you over extra. Um, can you give us your plugs for your improv troupe and your schedule and all your social media and that kind of stuff? Sell yourself to our, our vast listening audience. Yeah, alchemycomedy.com, greenvillecomedy.com, greenvilleimprov.com, all go to the same place. Um, we, te- we have shows every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, 7.30 and 9 o'clock, and a show Friday at 10.30 and Saturday at 10.30. Every Saturday at 4.30 for five bucks, so you can sign up and just show up at the theater and just try improv for five dollars um and then uh, there's improv 101 classes uh starting about every six weeks or so there's one in january there's one yeah in january that's awesome that's great and i can uh, offer a personal testimony my wife and i went to see uh oh, harrison yes. do uh improv and we had a, a really wonderful time they make it look very easy but i'm sure <laughs> it's actually very difficult with effortless and it was very very enjoyable and a very reasonable price. Yeah, the shows are from zero dollars to five dollars to eight dollars. The most expensive show is ten whopping dollars. Yeah, I think we went to one for ten, but we, it was great. It was a, it was your two man show, one of your two man shows. Oh yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we went for ten dollars, and I felt like I completely got my money worth in yucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plus, you can drink beer while you're watching. Yes, you yeah, and it's, you don't have to be twenty one to go. It's it's a, try generally keep it as an open environment as possible. Most of the seven thirty shows are family friendly, PG or so. Right. Nine o'clock show, PG thirteen. None of them are really that graphic. Nah, nah I don't remember anything. Keeping it light. Yes. Well, cool. I guess that's it for our time today. But this was so much fun. Uh, Many thanks to Harrison for being our guest and making us laugh today. Thanks for being laughed. (laughs) And until next time, knuckle up and always be ready to explain yourself.